This is the Command Your Brand podcast, where we talk to world changers, visionaries, and founders, people that are doing big things and changing this planet in a positive way. We're learning their stories, techniques, and exactly what you need to know so that you can do things in a big way. The time is now. Get ready to take command of your brand. Jeremy here, and guys, I'm very excited for the conversation we have with us today. We have Wiley McGraw with us today. He's a former star pitcher, competitive bull rider, three-time combat tour veteran, and he's also a performance accelerator, which I'm really excited to talk about today. So, uh, Wiley, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. Yeah, Jeremy, I appreciate you having me on, brother. So, the thing I was really interested about in your story, and this is, I think, a great place for us to start is you had mentioned you were a former ball player. You had played for your dad, I guess, was a former ball player too, if I understand, or you came from a family yeah, that had... Ball player. Yeah. So I had a similar experience where my dad was somebody that he was, you know, you have a five-tool player, but my dad was a six-tool player because he could play every position and play and pitch 100 miles an hour. <laughs> but he had an injury in his early 20s, which derailed him in the minors, and that was kind of the end of his career because medical technology wasn't as good then as it is now. Right. And I think the thing that's interesting is... For me, the difficulty in that was my dad was always the best. And I was a great center fielder, man, but I was never going to be as good as my dad because he was the best. So I struggled with that a lot and how I practiced and how I prepared. And you had kind of similar experiences as a pitcher, which Mm. actually kind of set you up for where you went from there. So I'd love to hear about that. And you mentioned in the blog post you have about it that you went for something grittier. I'd love to hear about what that connection is from there. Yeah, I'm happy we have the connection in baseball. And I grew up in this sports household. So given the fact that my dad was a semi-pro ball player in the 70s, again, like you said, medical technology was not that great back then, and neither was the pay either, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> the idea of you know him turning down pro contracts because there wasn't enough of that for him. It was an interesting household to grow up in where the now the vicarious desire to live through his three sons' talent was very palpable at a young age. So for me, it's like pitching became the passion that I loved. I started playing t-ball when I was like four years old and I started getting on the mound right away. And when we got into the little leagues and started to play, it was pitching was all that he had me focus on. It was like my Mm. life revolved around practicing day in and day out, year in and year out pitching. I was getting trained by the California Angels pitching staff back in the 80s and perfecting my arsenal. And for the household that I grew up in and having this like incessant push to be perfect at sports, was a good thing in a way because you could take that down that path and becoming a pro. You can do something with that talent and that kind of support. But as I got older, I started to recognize where the external pressures and stresses were actually hindering my commitment and connection to the game. Yeah, Jeremy. So that Saturday afternoon, I got on that ride for the first time and that bull slammed me on the ground It slipped in the mud and and it pinned my leg underneath it. It was like this brief stare Mm. for that moment between me and that wild animal that literally turned me on in a way that sports had not done. So for me, I found this new wild side of myself being unleashed and I got turned on and I got excited about that. And that's why I just stuck it out and I went after becoming a bull rider competitively for quite a many years because I realized in that environment, 
I was actually becoming more of the man I wanted to be. It was this wild world of unknowns where you've got to learn how to yield to the fear. You have to learn how to be present. You have to learn how to be intuitive and connect yourself to all elements of who you are in any given moment so that you can actually experience the joy of riding bulls or any kind of wild animal. That's really interesting too, because I know for me, it was slightly different. Like it was kind of got into powerlifting was kind of the big thing that did it for me. And, you know, I've lost some weight. I was 215, I'm 5'7". So it was like a little (laughs) funky. Yeah, I couldn't find a door I like fitting into. So the thing that's kind of interesting about it is you really do find out more of who you are. You find out like more about risks and things like that. And I guess from there, like a really big part of your career then was also being a combat veteran. I guess, was bull riding just kind of a thing to prepare you for that next step? Or where did you go from there? And when did you decide to make a big commitment? It's amazing because we obviously, we all have our own individual experiences and journeys in life. And you found powerlifting, which I did a little bit of it myself. And I understand what you're talking about. I mean, you're that's being a big dude when you're your height. So you found this unbelievable unleashing in that environment. And that's the key element that I think people overlook is being put in the right environments that actually challenge you outside of your control, that push you into this state of unconditional vulnerability to really experience who you are and where your power and potential actually resides versus going through life step-by-step, trying to follow other people's blueprints, et cetera. So from that whole experience I had, it was intuitively where I felt Baseball was not allowing me to choose who I wanted to become. Mm-hmm. Bull riding became this evolutionary step of unleashing that version that I've been dying to meet that I knew was inside me. It gave me permission to let the warrior nature that I had that was otherwise being stifled by my father and people in my family come out fully. And that is where I realized I need to be in environments like this that scare me, that challenge me, that push me and force me to be present from all angles of who I am. Mm -hmm. Where else can I find that? And that's why the military to me was- Can I just add something to that too, Wiley, before you go? That's a really, really good point. Because like I had a book come out in June and this is like one of the big things I talk about. Like I call that the blacksmith's forge, right? The furnace, because you go through that thing and it's this ultimate transformation thing where you come out and you have to be different. You're forced to be different. I think for a lot of us, for you, it sounds like it was the military, but you're forced to be different. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing, the right environments that can forge you into becoming more of who you are. Those are the things that we need that we're not getting enough of, especially in our personal development industry, across the board, when it comes to coaches and consultants and leadership people, we're not putting people in the right environments that actually can forge who they are to become their best. They're just giving people these regurgitated, repackaged systems and processes that basically don't really do anything other than limit people's capabilities. So the military became the next evolution. It became this environment where I wanted to be with other men and women who were like me in a more, I would say, exotic, radical place. And that's why I found the United States Army going and jumping out of airplanes. I wanted to go to Ranger School. I wanted to experience more challenging places that pushed me beyond my own limits. And the military provided that framework and atmosphere for me to become something even more elite personally so that I could then take those experiences into the world when I got out of the military, build something of my own, and realize that in the throes of war, I discovered the innate capabilities I had to be able to actually put people themselves in those environments as a leader, challenge them in ways they've never been challenged, see the blind spots in their performance, do something about it that erupts them and actually eradicates them so their performance can actually grow and become exponential. That's where I actually took my life and my journey next. So it's truly, are you in the right environments? 
that actually are out of your control, that stretch you, challenge you in ways that match your capacity? Or are you choosing the environments that give you some false sense of outside a comfort zone that aren't really transforming you, only just satisfying some ego version of what you think is transformation? That's the difference aspect. So that's really interesting too, because I didn't see on your site that you've written about this yet, but I feel like there's a blog post coming. I don't know if you saw (laughs) Kyler Murray for the Arizona Cardinals just signed a big contract. I did, yeah. yeah. 42 million or something like that. But one of the requirements in this contract was that he has to watch film four hours a week. And I'm like, okay. Like you look at somebody like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or Luke Keekley that used to play linebacker for Carolina Panthers. Right. Luke Keekley, his first three years in the NFL, didn't have cable in his house because all he wanted to do was watch film in his house. Tom Brady built a film room in his house. Peyton Manning built a film room in his house. Nobody had to tell them to do that. They built the skills in order to be that thing they wanted to be. Like to me, if you're telling a guy in his contract, hey, you got to watch four hours of film a week, that's not somebody that wants to be a high performer. Am I right? That's a good way to frame that. People should have that innate talent and capability. Welcome in the right resources that can holistically integrate and support their ability to accentuate that talent and that skill. Tom Brady is a perfect example. Just like the military, pro athletes, our government agencies have resources that surround them, that push them far beyond where they even think they can go, especially with things as simple as watching film. If you're making $45 million a year and that's all the stipulation they give you, it's not going to stretch you far enough to keep up with the demand of what they expect of you. You need these types of leaders, these development people, the non-yes men that are integrated with you to push you and hold you accountable in the fire, even when you don't want to do it. And that's what makes somebody Mm -hmm. great. That's the difference between someone just being a high achiever and someone who becomes an elite performer in their life. And it's very hard to achieve that, even though people give themselves the title constantly just because they run a billion dollar company. Yeah, I got in a debate with Dan Orlovsky from ESPN on this, like this week about it on Twitter. And it's like, to me, like, you shouldn't have to tell the guy to watch four hours of film a week. If he wants to be the best, he should be watching 10, 15 hours, 20 hours a week on his own. Like nobody should be making him do it. Like, I think at a certain point, you have this transformation and high performance then becomes something like, yeah, you need accountability and that's important, but it becomes this innate drive, right? And I'm sure you've seen that with a lot of high performers you work with. Yes. It becomes an innate drive. And tell us a little bit about that. Like, how have you seen that transformation in people? High performance is a phenomenal segue into that piece, Jeremy, because high performance is widely misconstrued as somebody's ability to make money and generate notoriety. It's some weird asymmetrical benchmark of what we define as success. When we see someone that has that, We automatically assume that they've done so much hard work and they've been so determined to achieve that type of success, and they have. There's no doubt about it. However, high performance should be measured by how well someone is also living their life. If you look at the elements of their life, their relationships. Yes, yes, that's an excellent point. Absolutely. So if you cannot measure your life from how balanced and powerful your relationships, your health, your focus, your peace, your personal sanity, if they are not at the top with your ability to make money and your ability to generate notoriety, you're not living a high performance life. You're just achieving and you're sacrificing for the sake of that achievement. That is not something we should emulate, but we have a complete system of emulation thinking that that's the way to succeed. And then we are actually sacrificing, overlooking and overriding very dysfunctional aspects of who we are as human beings. And we're not realizing that those elements accentuate our ability to be high performance in our lives. Do you have a video on your site that talks a little bit about this? That's what got me thinking about Tom Brady. And yeah. you mentioned politicians there too, and how they live their lives and high performance should be a big thing. And I think 
especially in that sphere, like that's really important, right? Because like if one of these guys does something wrong, does something illegal, nobody knows about it, but somebody else gets that information and now uses it and they can now kind of make them do something they shouldn't be doing. High performance is an ethical standard. It's how yeah. you carry yourself. It's how you show up every day. Absolutely. And you can't just kind of be a character of it. Am I correct? Absolutely. 100%. And I love that's a good way to put it. You cannot be a character of it. It is truly a standard of living. It's breaking down this definition, this, I say, one-sided definition that high performance means X. How much money can we make and grow for the company? That's not performance. That's achievement. We've got to stop looking at it as your performance is how you live your life, the standards you hold, and the way you show up, not only in public, but also behind the curtain. When you pull the curtain back, which I've worked with so many different public figures, celebrities, professional athletes over the years, CEOs, if you pull the curtain back from a lot of these leaders' lives, you actually would probably step back and go, I don't know why I'm following this person because they're not living to the standard they are out in the world projecting on the surface. We've got to marry those two versions and get them to uplift all areas of their life so that when they're in public and they're leading others, it naturally infects people properly instead of negatively. And that's the problem we have, especially with politicians is we're not demanding our leaders, our industry titans, the people that have influence on laws and rules. We're not demanding them to be great. We're accepting mediocrity. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. We should be removing them from office. We should be impeaching them. I don't care what party they are because like, we should be holding people an ethical standard because if they do that there, right, they're probably doing it in other places. 100%. And I've seen it time and time again, especially those that actually do the work with me is we pull the hood up and we look at what's going on in our lives. And they're like, yeah, I've been successful here, but I've been burned out. I'm at my wits end. My relationships are suffering. My wife hates me. People don't trust me. I have a problem. And it's like, I need to figure out what I'm doing wrong for 30 years as a leader. And we discover that majority of the difficulties these people are dealing with are not residing within the problems themselves. There's so much more going on with the human dynamic that we don't look at. And what they do is they're used to hiring celebrity coaches, household names, and they get yes men surrounding mm -hmm. them. They don't get someone that's radical enough that actually doesn't give a crap about their title, their industry, who they are, that can actually get them and hold them accountable in the trenches so they can battle through their own personal demons and actually become what they say they are out in public. You know, it's interesting. And this is just something I thought of. I don't know if this comes up for you in conversation with people. It's like, you're telling me of this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. Do you know what these problems have in common? You. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we don't want to consider is you look yeah. in the mirror like that. The only yeah. thing they actually have in common is the person involved in them. Exactly, brother. And so we create this weird compartmentalization of life that it's outside of us. I mean, I had this mm -hmm. quick conversation with this billionaire not too long ago, and it was like we had a mutual contact and I said, hey, I heard you had some problems. I'm a problem solver. I'm happy to have a conversation. He's like, yeah, let's do it. And then when I started to press to get on the call, he started to separate himself from all of his problems as if they were outside of himself and basically tell me he doesn't need help. He needs me to figure out how to solve his legal troubles and things going on over here. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. The reason why you're experiencing these things in your life is because there's something going on with you you have not addressed yet. That's the difference. So I think the thing that's really interesting is for you, like you've talked about the coaching industry just kind of being this thing where everybody's a coach and some deserve to be and some don't deserve to be. And I think that's a really, really important thing. You know, like hard work, experience, those things are valuable. And I think 
there's value in coaching and guidance. But I think when it comes from somebody that has experience and things like that, because you're actually changing the scene because you've changed the scene. And I think that's interesting. It is. And I do talk about it constantly. Labels, we're so jaded nowadays, especially with the personal development industry. I mean, people, Americans are spending almost $200 billion a year on self-help and personal growth. And still people are limited. People are mm-hmm. suffering. People are not successful the way they want to. Why? It's because the industry has been built around their bottom line first, helping you second, period. Yes. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care who the person is. If you actually strip them down to the core, they care more about their empire, their bottom line, growing themselves, staying relevant, and you getting help is secondary to make sure that that is maintained. That's the status quo, which is why when you hear the word coach, people absolutely have this like visceral, cynical reaction to it. The titles that I even throw, like a performance accelerator is something that my clients have given to me. It's not like some cool, catchy fun marketing. I don't care what you call me. I'm a glorified, high-paid, high-level janitor. At the end of the day, I get into people's <laughs> lives, integrate with them, and I literally clean out all of their crap so they can become elite in their lives and experience that exponential success for themselves sustainably. So the titles that people give, everybody's a coach nowadays. Everybody's trying to find a way to make the most amount of money, grow their business, scale at all costs. And all you hear is, and help some people too. And it's like, okay, we've got a problem with that. That's why our personal development industry is so full of cynicism and skepticism nowadays. Everybody's instantly putting up their guard when they hear someone saying, I can support you, is because they automatically, intuitively, unconsciously know, Jeremy. And I want the audience to hear that. Is they unconsciously know it's BS what they're getting. This person's not in it for me 100%. They're in it for themselves first. And that is the massive contrast that I constantly focus on is, I don't care about someone's money or notoriety. I care about the right person who's willing to do whatever it takes, who can surrender and get into the trenches and battle through it so we can accelerate and get them to the top of their game, period. You know what's interesting too? The thing I jotted down while you were talking is like in my head, things always go to like sports Mm -hmm. analogies. That's just where my brain goes. But like players that make you better, right? You look at Allen Iverson, incredible player. Adrian Dantley, incredible player. These guys that were great players on bad teams. But now you look at somebody like Michael Jordan, six championships. He made everybody around him better. You look at Tom Brady, makes everybody around him better. And LeBron, sure, he won, but you had to put four other superstars around for him to win. So I think when you look at great players and great coaches, they make people better and actually reach their full potential. You know what's great about those people that you just mentioned is they are not too egoic that they can't listen to someone just because they don't have seven Super Bowl rings. They actually will respect someone who maybe is not as rich as them because that person has this ability to integrate with them and actually show them the blind spots, show them where their stresses are hindering them, push them even a little bit further than they can push themselves. It's the same thing with Jerry Rice. He was that type of player that motivated and drove the rest of the players to be their best when he would practice. I remember having a conversation with Bo Eason many years ago. And I know you know who Bo Eason is. So and him and I were chatting and he was telling me about Jerry Rice's practice habits. When he would go out on the field, he'd be the first one out there. Jerry would run his patterns, catch the football, and then run full speed all the way through the end of the end zone. Whereas the other star players would run, do their little pitter-patter steps, catch the football, and then drop the ball and go back to the huddle. Jerry practiced like he played. He showed Mm -hmm. people this is what being great looks like. And he was willing to hear feedback and criticism. And I worked with an Olympic hammer thrower years ago, and I remember his gold medal coaches would tell him, it's like you literally 
need to live your life, practice, and operate as if you're already in the competition and yep. seeing yourself winning. There's no other way to do it. It's like he woke up every day going, I don't know anything. That was his attitude. I don't know mm-hmm. anything. Even though he's an Olympic hammer thrower, I don't know anything. Teach me today. Next morning, I don't know anything. Teach me today. And when I would work with him, he woke up every day as stressful and as tired and as like driven as we were doing this work with him. He was always saying, I don't know anything. Let's get after it. I'm open. I'm willing. Get me to where I need to go now. And I mentioned Alan Iverson in that one too, because yeah. I love the point of you practice how you play, right? Like a couple of weeks ago, Labor Torres, mm-hmm. the second baseman for the Yankees, doesn't yeah. run out of ground ball. Aaron Boone benches him. He says, everybody runs out of ground ball. I don't care how many runs we're down by. I mentioned Alan Iverson because you look at the famous thing that he did many, many years ago now at this point. We talk about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We talk about practice. So it's like, Alan, how you practice is how you play. Like it's how you show up. You don't just turn it on one day. And I think that's the thing when you're living a high-performance lifestyle, whether it's in business, whether it's in sports, whatever it may be, it's not just something you turn on. It's what you have to become and be because what you are sometimes in your life is how you're always going to show up. Right. 100%. And you said it so eloquently and well is it's how you show up in your life, how you perform when no one's looking. It's almost as simple as I had a conversation with a guy said, do you wake up in the morning and how you take a piss? How well are you doing the simplest things in your life? Because they all actually add up to how well you're doing the biggest things in your life. There is no separation of those things. So if you're performing under par with your wife, spouse, partner, children, et cetera, you're not actually maximized in your potential as a business leader, as an athlete, as a CEO, a public figure, celebrity, whatever title you have, you're not getting the most out of your power and potential because you're willing to limit or live limited over here. It's going to affect it over here. I don't care how much you've accumulated. And you know, what's interesting. So we actually just changed offices. So I was loading the bookshelves yesterday and I grabbed a book I haven't read in a number of years. I'm like, man, I got to read this again. And it's a book by, I think it's General McRaven. And he talks about the idea of like making your bed and how you do every day. Like those things, those small things, like those are vital. They are. And you know what? That's the key. He said, especially at that commencement speech, is the reason why the military requires you first thing in the morning at 4.30 a.m. to get up and make your bed to the point where you can bounce a quarter off of it is not because, well, it is because of the discipline. It's because of the structure, but it's to give you the goal of the day, first goal of the day to accomplish. And if you feel accomplished with that very first small goal, you're going to want to do another one and you're going to want to progress and you're going to want to see what else can I do today that makes me better? What are the goals that I have for myself personally? So the bed becomes just a starting benchmark of what it takes to accomplish the goals you actually set yourself out to accomplish. And then that's the thing is people will get up and they think they're going to turn it on and they're going to go to the office and they're like, well, I'm in a leadership position at this multi-billion dollar company. So automatically I already got it figured out. And it's like, no, I've seen so many leaders fail because of that attitude and they don't know why their lives are falling apart. And then they start to blame outside forces and they'll realize, no, has everything to do with the things that you have not addressed within you and in your life. That's where we need to start. So let me ask you this then, because I think this is something that the entire leadership industry, they don't address this, right? They don't address like you handle what's up with you first. They like, oh, well, you lead with this strategy and this is how you do it. And this is how you talk to people. And this is what you do. 
And I think that what you're talking about isn't discussed. I had a conversation a number of years ago on the show with General David Petraeus. Oh. And one of the things that General Petraeus had said, he talked about the biggest thing he learned when he was a fresh officer. And he was working for a general at that point in time who didn't mm-hmm. demand that people get him a drink with a special flag in that drink and three things of ice. Like he got his own drinks. He didn't care. And he learned how you communicate to people and how you treat people. But I think at the same time, you have to have handled yourself to be able to approach that that way. So I guess like once we've handled ourselves, how do we approach leadership? Ooh, the leadership now becomes a more innate byproduct. And you know, what's interesting is like General Petraeus was actually my division commander in Iraq. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. He's a super nice guy. I imagine not in combat, but like when I talk to him. <laughs> well, I mean, you remember, yeah, being a general, that's a very special thing that is someone yeah. to become a general, especially a United States Armed Forces commander of everything going on overseas. But he was a great division commander. I remember having pulling security for him in Iraq, doing some work, having conversations with him too, periodically. He is a great leader and he talks about being the leader you want others to emulate, mm-hmm. not just speaking it and not just demanding it. Like you said, that general did not want him to go get his, he go get his own coffee, go get his own water. It's like, there's nothing wrong with someone portraying leadership qualities that are respectable. It's like, why not follow someone who's embodying what you think a leader looks like and what a leader should be, especially in that kind of situation. And it's like him and I are connected on LinkedIn and I pay attention to some of his posts. And it's like, He says things that are grounded, balanced, and are all about giving people a wide scope of understanding and perspective to pull out their own conclusions, to learn things from it versus just being the guy that vomits at someone or demands someone to be something or not. It's the same thing with SEAL teams, same thing with airborne infantry where I was at at the 101st. We all provide each other this team effort element where just because we have a leader does not mean that everybody else has to shut up and just do what they're told. There's this element of leadership means the care for those that are in your command, the care for those that are yeah. under your charge, not just being in charge. And that's what I love about that. It kind of is learning to get rid of that. Like, don't you know who I am factor? You know what I mean? Like Petraeus talks about like some of these guys that he's had to deal with in the military, like they don't have a chest big enough to pin all the medals they want to pin to it as well. It's like, <laughs> the, don't you know who I am factor? And like to be yeah, a great no. leader, you have to drop that. And Jeremy, you're right. And I remember going to Afghanistan after the September 11th and we were deployed not too long after that. And We had not gotten our entire unit into the country yet. And my battalion commander at the time, we called these guys badge hunters. These are people that are looking for those awards and the combat patches and the CIBs, which is our combat infantryman's badge, which is one of the most coveted things that we can get because it means we were actively engaged in ground combat against an armed enemy in the United States. It's the thing that a lot of these infantry guys, they want. And it's like, do you want to get shot at? Do you want to go to war? Do you want to kill? Do you want to fight? Is that what you really care about the most? And he was that guy that did that. And I remember going in and he's the leader that said, I don't care about what I'm being told when it comes to this operation that we were being asked to send on. He said, the intelligence told us we could lose 40% of our men if we get sent in right now, if we don't wait for backup. And he said, let's do it. I'm willing to take that risk. And we had been in country three weeks. And it's like, mm-hmm. what kind of leader is willing to sacrifice 40% of their force barely being in country. Are you thinking about the families, your men, the mission itself, making sure we get in and get out and be precision machines that we were trained to be? Or do you care more about yourself as a leader? And that's the difference. That is an egoically driven person versus someone like General Petraeus. And what you said earlier, I just want to touch on is our quote leadership development industry, the leadership aspect of it, they all focus on approaches 
from the outside in on how to solve problems with strategies, and they do not take into consideration the individual lives of the leader themselves. Yep. I just want to add to that too, since I had mentioned the general's name that Petraeus was working with, I want to at least make sure I looked it up here. It was Jack Galvin at the time, Major General Jack Galvin he was working for at the time. Okay. Yeah. That name sounds familiar. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know him, but yeah. I guess he's since passed on, but I think like that's the type of leadership that we want to be is somebody that people want to push for. They want to fight for, they want to work for, you know what I mean? Like you want to be that leader that people want to do more for. Yeah, exactly. But I want to, and that's what my entire business has been built around my, this mission of taking it even further than that Okay, is making leaders far beyond just their ability to be these great leaders on the surface, but bringing absolute, I would say, unity with all areas of their lives so that we can squeeze out more of that amazing leadership quality in that person. It's easy to chalk up, well, he's doing so many great things here, that 5% that's actually lagging over here is acceptable. To me, it's not. We need to look at that 5% and we need to optimize that 5% because I want a leader like that to be 100% in their lives, in their relationships, whatever you've got going on, there's a way in which we can battle it and eradicate it so that we can exponentially just uplift that other percentage of your life that's not actually keeping up with that amazingness that you are as a leader on the surface. For me, I want leaders that actually want to change the world based on who they are, not on what they say are the positions. Well, Wiley, this has been a great conversation, man. I'm really glad yeah, we got a chance to do this today. I was really looking forward to it. And man, you over-delivered on what I was hoping for. So thank you today. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> for people you. listening, if they want to connect with you, man, if they want to learn more, if they want to work with you, how should people reach out to you, man? Uh, you know what? Honestly, it's as direct as just connecting to the resources that I put together for people that are listening that want to start grasping these concepts, insights, and philosophies around becoming more high performance in their life. I have this thing we put together called yourperformancevault.com. It's a nice little page for podcast listeners that they can go in there and they can tap into different assets and resources that I have put together over my experiences in my life to the work that I've done with powerful people and really start to digest and absorb really powerful insights, philosophies for themselves. WileyMcGraw.com is the website that it'll link them to as well. They can just peruse all different sorts of insights and things that I've put together. So those are good places to do it. If people want to connect on LinkedIn.com, I'm there as well. Twitter, just we created a whole new page for that. So I can start putting out some really challenging conversational pieces for people as well. Very cool. Wiley McGraw, thank you so much for hanging out with me today, man. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate you. Thank you.